Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Morrow, and we're here again for another episode of To Your Health. We're very excited to be here. I'm with Morrow Family Medicine. We have uh, a family practice and with offices in Cumming and Milton, Georgia. In our practice, we have two physicians, four physician assistants, and one nurse practitioner. We've got pretty much the whole gamut of healthcare provider and primary care. We are ready to see you when you need to be seen. And toward that goal, we have a walk-in hour every morning. We start our day at 7.30. In the first hour, you don't need an appointment. So uh, if you think of it as sick call if you're in the military. A lot of people refer to it as that. But basically, if you have a problem or a concern, come to Mara Family Medicine, either Cumming or Milton, Georgia, at 7.30 in the morning, and we will take care of you right then. So I'm here on Windward Parkway in Alpharetta, Georgia, in the Renaissance Bank building. This is the North Fulton Business Radio X Studios. I'm here with John Ray, my cohort and producer. How are you, John? I'm great. I'm worried, though. Why are you worried? About my resistance mechanism. You worried about superbugs? <laughs> you can tell I've been reading ahead. I can. And it, we all need to be concerned about superbugs because this is, this is a big deal. And I'm probably as guilty as anyone of, uh, of fathering this problem because for 30-plus years, I think we all have been writing too many antibiotics. So we are here today to talk about appropriate antibiotic usage. And I can promise you that every time you go to the doctor with what you think is a sinus infection, you don't need an antibiotic. Antibiotic resistance is one of the, the biggest, most pressing public health problems in the United States. And the threat is that if we're not careful, we're going to return to a day when simple infections were often fatal because they didn't have antibiotics, they didn't have medications that could take care of even the simplest infections. Antibiotic resistance is seen as a national priority, and the government has taken some steps to fight this threat. Uh, They have developed not only a national strategy, but also they have a national action plan for what to do to try to educate people, both providers and patients, about antibiotics and their proper usage. The CDC is working on improving antibiotic prescribing, making it where people are more likely to prescribe them when they really are necessary, and also working on educating patients about the importance of this because I think it's it's very safe to say that most people go to the doctor expecting something to be done that's going to cure them And a lot of times you have something that's going to get better in spite of me, not because of me. And I actually tell patients that sometimes they kind of look at me like I'm crazy, but that's probably not the only thing to look at me like I'm crazy for, is it, John? So if we optimize how we use antibiotics and how we prescribe them, we can actually protect people from the harm and of of resistant antibiotic and uh, resistant bacteria. And we can also combat this antibiotic resistance. It has the potential to affect anyone at any stage. So you shouldn't think, well, I'm young, I can deal with it or I can tolerate it. Because what's happening is we're creating bacteria that are out in the environment that are resistant to so many of the antibiotics that we have available to us. I've written a Z-Pack, if you're familiar with that, or a five-day Zithromax pack for 
uh, upper respiratory infections more times than I could ever count. And now an awful lot of the bacteria that cause upper respiratory infections are resistant to that. So we're seeing this take place every single day in, in real life. In America, every year, at least 2 million people are infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And everybody's heard about MRSA. Some people refer to it as MRSA, but it's MRSA. And of these 2 million people, at least 23,000 will die from antibiotic-resistant infections. This is a huge, huge problem. Nobody can completely avoid the risk of resistant infections. But some people are at greater risk, people with chronic illnesses, people who are older, people who are on other medications and so forth. And so you have to be really, really careful when you're taking an antibiotic and when you're talking to your doctor about the possibility of an antibiotic. So the whole resistance thing goes back, of course, to the time when antibiotics were discovered and they were first discovered. Penicillin was the very first one back in the 1920s. Dr. Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. And yes, it was mold that was growing on bread, and they found that if you took that mold and you did something with it, you could turn it into something that would kill bacteria. And that's pretty remarkable for the time, if you think about it. And ever since then, they've been discovering new and different antibiotics, and they've also been seeing and acknowledging that so many more bacteria are becoming resistant to these. These germs are able to actually find ways to become resistant even to new drugs. And germs also have, bacteria also have, a way of sharing this resistance between each other. So that a lot of times uh, germs have what's, a, what's called a new defense strategy, different resistance mechanisms, if you will, to avoid these things. And one of them is that a resistance gene can be on what's called a plasmid, which is a little piece of DNA. And that little plasmid can actually be moved from bacteria to bacteria. And it's not just from E. coli to E. coli to the same bacteria. It can go to different bacteria. So they can actually share their resistance mechanisms among different types of bacteria. And you can just imagine the problem this has the potential to cause as we're trying to fight off infections. My father was a senior at Clemson in 1943, and he finished right in the middle of World War II and when he went to officer candidate school, they determined that he had a spot on his lung and they thought he had TB. Well, at the time, they didn't have any antibiotics or antibacterials to treat TB. So they sent him to Denver to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital, and they kept him in the hospital for two years. He felt as good as I do today, might have felt better than I do today as a young man. And he, they kept him there for two years watching this infection or this spot never proved it was an infection, on his lungs and trying to see if he was going to get sick, if he was going to get well. They didn't have medicine to give him, so after two years, he convinced them to cut out his lung and let him go home, and they did. And that's how he got out of the hospital. And that's the way that many infections were treated back in the day before we had antibiotics was to get rid of the infected part. If that was a foot, then you went without a foot. And if that was a lung, then you might go without part of a lung. So today in the office, we have a wide range of antibiotics that we can use to treat infections. And some of the most, in common, most common infections that we see, I'm going to talk about a few of them. One of them is what everybody refers to as a sinus infection. It's acute rhinosinusitis. 
It's uh, congestion, drainage, sometimes colored mucus, maybe a cough, sore throat, that kind of thing. So about one out of every eight people every year will have something like this, and they'll end up in a doctor's office a lot of the time because they feel like they need to have something done. Now, 98% of these cases, 98% of these cases are, are viral. They're not bacterial at all. And even when they are bacterial, many of these people will get well without the use of antibiotics. But everybody knows that we live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately environment now. So people come to the office, and they want to start getting better tomorrow. Well, the problem with that is that antibiotics, when they are effective, take at least three days, really, to kick in and start working. So when people come to me on Thursday and they say that I've got to be well on Saturday – my usual response is, well, you should have gotten sick sooner because there's just not enough time between Thursday and Saturday to get most people better if they have a true bacterial infection. So the diagnosis of acute bacterial sinusitis is based on three main things. One's the severity. How long has it been there? Do you have fever? Do you have a lot of purulent or pussy drainage? Do you have facial pressure? A lot of times people will have a, a toothache because the sinus right above the teeth is full of fluid and putting pressure on the nerves. So you might have some facial pain and pressure. The other thing is it persistent. Has it been going on for more than 10 days without getting any better? Have you had a cough? Have you had that nasal discharge and so forth for as long as 10 days? And the other thing is, is it getting worse? Have you had it for a while and it's getting worse and worse? You find your cough is worse, your fatigue is worse, your your lethargy is worse, and so forth. So if those are the case, then you may very well have a bacterial sinus infection. And a lot of doctors will shoot sinus x-rays on just about everybody that walks in the door with a sinus complaint. And these are really just not recommended routinely. They're done routinely in some situations, but they're really not recommended. So I, I encourage you to take a pass on a sinus x-ray if it's something that's offered for you when you have just really what amounts to some head pressure and congestion. Now, if you do establish that you have an actual bacterial infection in your sinuses and in your upper airway, the first thing you should do is watch for waiting. Take some time. Take a step back before you start taking antibiotics. I write prescriptions very frequently, and instead of sending them to the pharmacy, I'll put them on paper and print them to the, for the patient and tell them, look, give this three or four days, and if this is not better, then you've got this antibiotic prescription and you can go get it filled. And I'm not naive enough to think that they always wait. I think a lot of times they go straight to the pharmacy with it, but at least they know what a good plan would be. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, Zithromax has gotten to where it's not as effective in about 40% of the bacteria that cause these common infections. So probably something like amoxicillin or augmentin is a better choice to go with first line. A lot of people have a penicillin allergy. They can't take those things. So doxycycline or even one of the Leviquin uh, derivatives is a good idea for one of the respiratory problems like that. So we've got plenty of antibiotics we can use, but you can, I mean, Zithromax only came out 20 years ago, maybe a little less than that. And it's already showing 40% of these isolates are resistant to it. So that's a, that's a huge problem if you think about it over a long period of time. So one of the other common things we see in the office is bronchitis. 
see patients every day with bronchitis, whether they're smokers or not, whether they have allergies or not. They have a, a horrible cough, and it can be just body shaking. But they have a cough, and that's really what they have is just a cough. I was told when I was in training that you can cure bronchitis pretty much with tap water because if you give bronchitis enough time in a person who's not immunocompromised, a person that doesn't have emphysema, COPD, and things like that, it's going to go away. But again, we are all guilty of treating that with antibiotics and jumping on that so people can get better faster, we're thinking, or so that they'll feel like we're doing more for them. Or a lot of times I'll do it so that people don't get any worse because if you do have somebody with some of the lung diseases I mentioned, if they do have bronchitis, there's a good chance that they're going to get worse. And so I'll put them on antibiotics so at least they don't develop a bacterial problem. But if you have colored sputum, people think that, well, that means that's bacterial. If you have green sputum, that's bacterial. And that's just not the case. You can have a wide range of that, and you still are dealing with what's most likely a viral infection. The routine treatment of bronchitis, the best way to go with that is really with cough suppressants and mucolytics, cool air, and thyme, which is the hardest medicine in the world to take, I'm convinced. And so if you deal with those things in that way, you're going to get rid of the vast majority of cases of bronchitis without ever introducing an antibiotic into the equation. And then there's infected throats or pharyngitis. Now, everybody's heard of strep. Many, many people have already had strep at some point in their, th- in their lives. But a strep throat is a very significant infection. And it's significant not because of the sore throat, but because there are known complications to untreated strep infections. You can have kidney issues. You can have heart issues. So we, we're very diligent in trying to identify when a case is actually strep and treat it appropriately. Well, sometimes the treat, the way to go about that is to treat them all, all the sore throats, and that way you get the ones that are stripped, but you also get the ones that are not. And when it's not, then you're just exposing people to antibiotics unnecessarily. So if you do suspect strep, it's a good idea to do an in-office test. You don't necessarily have to do an actual culture where it's sent out, but to do a, a quick test for the antigen, it's called, the little protein that is, in fact, the strep. And if that's positive, then obviously that needs to be treated. There really aren't, I'm going to say many, there probably really aren't any diagnostic signs on physical exam for strep. You can have the worst-looking throat in the world. It's just red and it's covered in exudate or infection. There's white stuff all over it and the tonsils are huge and the ears are full of fluid because of that and the patient's miserable. But just because of that doesn't mean it's a bacterial problem. I do think that if you look in the throat and the uvula, the little hangy-down thing in the back of your throat, is horribly swollen and the tip of it's almost translucent where it looks like you almost see through it, to me, that's a pretty good sign you're most likely dealing with strep. And one of the problems I have with the strep test is you have to educate the people doing the strep test that if you're not gagging the patient, you're probably not getting a good strep test because if you go in there and just swab the cheek, you're not going to get a result. Antibiotics are indicated if you have strep because you do want to prevent the kidney issues that can come up and the heart valve issues that can come up. And so it's important to know what you're dealing with. 
It's important to go to the doctor and be seen if you have a bad throat that lasts more than about 48 hours. I'm certainly not saying as soon as you wake up with a sore throat, you should be at the office because that's just not necessary. But if you deal with one for as long as 48 hours and you're not getting better, then it's a very good idea for you to go and get checked and see if you do, in fact, need an antibiotic. People call the office all the time. Hey, I got a sore throat. Will you send me a Z-Pack? And then they get mad when you don't do it and put a review on Google because you're an uncaring physician. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to take good care of them. And I think it's important for patients to understand, and it's not easy sometimes for them to understand, and I get that, that we're trying to do the best thing for them. We're not asking them to come in just so that we can get that $15 copay. So when it comes to appropriate antibiotic usage, what can you do as a patient? What are some of the things that you can do to actually help yourself? Well, talk to your healthcare provider. Be honest with them and, and, and say, look, what can I do to prevent infections? And what do I need to know about the antibiotics you're giving me? Is there, is there something I need to know? Should I start them now? Should I wait? And so forth. If you have loved ones or if you are in a healthcare facility like a hospital or a nursing home, these places are just covered up with bacteria. So ask your provider, what can you do to prevent infections? What kind of test do I need to be sure I'm getting the right antibiotic? Have you done a culture? Have you proven that this is a problem and so forth? Talk to them about what they're doing to prevent drug-resistant problems and especially a particular one called the lay term is C. difficile. It's Clostroides difficile, and it's a bacteria that causes horrendous diarrhea. It's a life-threatening diarrhea and is caused by using antibiotics. So if you're taking antibiotics, it can knock out the normal bacteria that control the flora in your colon. You knock those out and this clostridioides can overgrow and then you have a major problem and it can be incredibly difficult to deal with that. If you're in a healthcare facility, talk to your provider about, do I still need this medical device, this PICC line or this catheter? Because those things are fraught with infections and a huge problem. When you're at the doctor or even in the hospital, when the provider comes in the room, starts to examine you, ask them, would you mind washing your hands? I'd like for you to wash your hands before you start my treatment. I'm concerned about germs. I wash my hands more times than I can count every day. Uh, sometimes it's in front of the patient, sometimes it's not. But I certainly wouldn't be offended if they asked me to wash my hands. It would tell me that they're using their head and they're thinking straight. I like that. For, as a patient, clean your own hands. Regular washing of your own hands is one of the best ways to pre prevent the transmission of germs, to prevent getting sick. Uh, one of the things I tell patients all the time is I think the most common way that germs are spread in just everyday encounters is by using somebody else's pen to sign a credit card receipt. I'll do anything I can to use my own pen to sign a credit card receipt. And if I'm, if I have a pen and someone says, Hey, can I use your pen? I'll try to find them a pen they can use because I really don't want them all over my pen because people's hands are a mess. And if you're not washing them regularly, it's a major problem. When I was in medical school, one of my classmates did a special project with an infectious disease doctor in the hospital because, like I said, hospitals are known for being hotbeds of infection. And they did a study to see how long it took a room to be colonized with bacteria after housekeeping had come and cleaned the room after a patient moved out. 
So the patient leaves, housekeeping comes in, they go over the room with their version of a fine-tooth comb, whatever that might be, and bacteria get back in there. And this student found during his project that it took 15 minutes for bacteria to be back on the surfaces in that room that people would touch and deal with. 15 minutes. That's just not very long. Also, you want to be able to recognize the early symptoms of infection. Tell, tell your provider if you think you have an infection or if you do have one and it's getting worse or it's not getting better. Some infections, like skin infections, are pretty obvious. You get redness, you get pain, you might get drainage at an IV site if you have an IV. And symptoms of C. difficile, like I mentioned, are just mainly severe diarrhea with dehydration and nausea and just being as miserable as a human being can be. So some infections are pretty obvious, but some are not. So if you think there's a possibility, you should at least contact your provider or go be seen. One thing people don't think about is pets, getting infections from pets. Some animals carry germs that can make people sick. So wash your hands thoroughly with soap and water after playing with animals, dealing with where animals live, handling pet food, cleaning up after pets or livestock especially. That's a good way to not end up with some of the infections that you just don't see every day. A lot of times people will say to me, well, my body's resistant to this antibiotic. Well, that doesn't happen. What's resistant is the bacteria that's causing the infection. You don't have the resistance the bacteria does. Now, you may get infections and you may find that a particular antibody doesn't work. And as a provider, that's always good information for me to have. But it doesn't mean that it never will work. It just means that it hasn't worked historically in you, but it's still good information. One of the first podcasts I did was about vaccines, and we didn't get into a great deal of detail, but vaccination is one of the best ways to prevent illnesses. Now, recently, we've, they have developed vaccinations against bacterial infections, meningitis, pneumonia, that kind of thing. But historically, the majority of the vaccines have been against viral infections, but now we do have some good ones for bacterial infections as well. And that's a very good thing. So if you're a candidate for some of those vaccines, you should have them as soon and as early and as expeditiously as you can have them. Food safety. Food safety is very important. You know, if you're dealing with, with food in either the commercial or the residential setting, it really doesn't matter. Bacteria in food can make you sick, and these infections can be caused by drug-resistant germs. So pay attention to how you're not only preparing food but storing food. Don't leave it on the counter for more than two or three hours because if you do, then you could easily end up with a problem that you do not want. That's some kind of misery, and there's no reason for you to have to deal with that. Some of the urgent threats that we're dealing with and that you hear CDC talk about a lot are the thing I mentioned about C. difficile. That's a, a very well-known problem and a very serious problem, probably a half million cases a year in the United States. And again, that comes from taking antibiotics and taking prolonged antibiotics. So if you're concerned about that, and we all should be, if you're taking antibiotics for more than five or seven days, it's a good idea to take a probiotic while you're taking it because that can help replace the bacteria in the colon that you're getting rid of. 15,000 people a year are dying from C. diff. There's a group of bacteria called, the lay term is nightmare bacteria. The technical name is Enterobacteraceae, which is 
too stupid to try to even smell it. Spell, that's just a crazy name. But these bacteria are resistant to most of the commonly used antibiotics, even some of the very strongest ones that they have in hospitals. That doesn't happen as much as something like C. diff. It's about 9,000 cases a year, but 600 people a year are dying from that. My first exposure to drug-resistant bacteria was when I was at Clemson. I was a microbiology major at Clemson, and my senior year I did a a research project with the professor there who was studying drug-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea, which, as you might be able to guess, causes gonorrhea. And at the time, it being resistant to penicillin was a fairly new thing and a very important thing. And so we were studying that. And now there are 246,000 cases a year of drug-resistant gonorrhea. So needless to say, and John, that's a podcast we probably ought to do at some point. It's about STDs. We haven't even talked about that, but that's a pretty good idea for the future. But if you can avoid 246,000 drug-resistant infections a year by using condoms, then people ought to be using condoms. So that's an awful lot of information in about 25 minutes. But I think everybody needs to know what you need to be doing and what you need to understand about appropriate antibiotic usage. The first is you need to understand, and you're absolutely right when you think this, antibiotics save lives. When a patient needs an antibiotic, they need that antibiotic to be there, and they need it to work efficiently. And they aren't always the answer, but when they are, it's important that the ones that we do have access to are going to be able to work. They don't work on viruses. They don't work on colds or the flu. They don't treat a runny nose, even, like I said, when the mucus is thick and green and looks like Elmer's glue. Antibiotics are only needed for certain infections that are caused by bacteria. Respiratory viruses usually go away in a week, two at the most, without any treatment. And you want to be careful so that you're not one of the two million people a year that are getting infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria or one of the 23,000 that die. If you do need antibiotics, if you're prescribed antibiotics, take them exactly as they're prescribed. More is not better. If it's written once a day, taking it twice a day is not going to do anything, but number one, make you run out early and you won't have a full course of treatment, and two, increase your side effects like C. diff and that kind of thing. We are blessed to live in a time when we don't have to worry about the plague. We don't have to worry about 19 million people dying from a flu epidemic when they actually died probably from bacterial pneumonia due to the flu. We are really very fortunate, but if we're not careful, if we're not good stewards of our environment and our even our microenvironment, then we're going to find that we're really behind the eight ball when it's all said and done. So, John, no, you cannot have antibiotics for your cold next time. (laughs) Well, uh, I may need a second opinion, but (laughs) that was a joke. so uh, it wasn't a very funny one. <laughs> I know, I know. You you didn't laugh real big at that. So, a uh, couple questions. Good, wonderful. What you got? So, two specific instances where people think about germs um, and and infection. Uh, the going to the uh, grocery store where there's the little uh, uh, wipes there that wipe off the uh, grocery cart. Yeah. Do I need to worry about the grocery cart? You do need to worry about the grocery cart. The grocery cart is just like my pen. I mean, people coming in there, they're, if they're sick, 
They come in, they're sneezing to their hand, they grab that grocery cart. Mm. Well, those bacteria, even viruses, can stay on that handle for quite some time, certainly long enough for you to grab the grocery cart. What's interesting is I've watched people do this. They will go over to the grocery cart in the little stack of carts, grab one, pull it out, push it over to the door where the thing is with the wipes, and then take the wipes and wipe off the cart that they already had their hand on. And I, I, sometimes I think I should just be standing there going, you might want to grab a wipe first before you grab the cart because it's all over once you grab the cart. But, yes, that's a problem. So do the wipes work, though? They do work. Okay. They do work. Okay. Yeah. So what about – now, one thing I've read is that your computer keyboard has more germs than the bathroom. Uh, that's probably a fairly safe statement. The difference to me is that I'm the only one using it in a lot of cases. Now, at, at my, as I say that, I'm thinking, well, at my office, I'm going in and out of exam rooms and you know, four different people are using that keyboard, and that's an excellent point. My personal keyboard, I'm not real worried about, but uh, yes, that's an absolute truth. I mean, people's hands are filthy. Mm. There's no way around that. I mean, if, if, micro, if microbacteria and, and microorganisms had color, we'd all look like rainbows. Mm. And then, of course, there's our phone, right? The phone, yeah. That's even a bigger issue than our keyboard. It is a huge issue and even dirtier than any of those things from what I've read. Uh, my wife pointed out to me uh, several months ago that there's a device you can get and put your phone in, and it basically – uses UV light to sterilize the outside of your phone. Oh, wow. And at the time, I will admit right here on the radio that I poo-pooed the whole idea, but I've kind of rethought it, and it's really not the worst idea in the world. You got a second opinion, huh? I did, <laughs> but you can't. <laughs> okay, I hear you on that. So uh, one other question. So you, you were talking about antibiotics and um uh, the proper usage of antibiotics. So when someone goes to, goes to visit you uh, and you prescribe antibiotics, how, how do you factor in what prescription someone may already be on and any issues that they might have that are, you know, where those medications conflict with each other? Well, that's a, a great question, and it's something that you face whether you're writing antibiotics or antihypertensives or cholesterol medicine or doesn't matter what it is. Sure. I mean, you just have to be fully aware of the patient's medication list, their full active medication list. And that's why when our nurses triage patients and bring them to the exam room, they spend quite some time with them. One of the main things they do is go over the medications. Have your medications changed? Is there anything on here you're not taking? Is there anything not on here you are taking? And we've got a couple of ways we can actually look and see what people have actually filled at the stores. So if they forget something, we can be clued into that. Uh, so that's good. But you have to think about that every single time that you write a medication. Uh, and these days with electronics and with electronic health records like they are, you know, you get some adv advice on there about, and often more advice than you really want, but you get some advice on there about this person's taking a statin. Are you sure you want to put them on that antibiotic? Are you sure you want to use this medicine because they're taking that? And sometimes it's just not worth uh, changing the antibiotic, but sometimes it's a very important thing. But your points are very good, but medication compliance, medication interactions is a huge 
problem uh, that, that we face every day, and you absolutely have to be very aware of it when you're writing these meds. It's actually another one of the reasons that you don't just call in medications for people because things have changed, and if you're not taking the time to be fully aware of them, you can cause more harm than good. And some folks don't get that, right? I mean, they think you're like giving them a hard time to come in, but it's 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 really for, for their own best interest. Absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. So is that all you got? For today. Wonderful. So I think next time we're actually going to talk about STDs. That You, you got inspired when I you did. mentioned that. I did. Okay. Uh, I, I wish that anyone who wanted to take the time to send us a – a message like these nice people have would would reach out to us at Dr. Jim. That's Dr. Jim at toyourhealth.md, or you can tweet us at toyourhealthmd. And if you have ideas for show topics, I'd love to hear them. Uh, this is a, a real windfall today, talking about STDs and a chance to to do a show on that because I think that's a real good idea. But uh, we're going to do that. And if people have ideas, I'd love to hear them or other comments or questions. Send them to us. We'd love to have them. So for now, that is to your health.